You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of gay panic and the murder of Jared Hackett. offenses in the Offenses Against the Person Act 1861, buggery was labelled as an abominable crime committed either with mankind or an animal that was punishable by penal servitude. While Ireland had progressed to a more liberal society by the 1970s, homosexuality was still a crime. David Norris, a Joycean scholar from Trinity College, began fighting to decriminalise homosexuality in the late 1970s. He stated that these laws contravened the Irish Constitution's stance on privacy. The case was dismissed by the High Court. In the decades previous, there were over a dozen men per year found guilty in relation to homosexual convictions, with over 400 men convicted between 1962 and 1972. Two years after Norris's failure in the High Court, two murders would highlight the unjust bias against gay men and women in Ireland. On September 8, 1982, 29-year-old John Roach was murdered by Michael O'Connor in the Munster Hotel, Cork City. Mr Roach worked in the hotel as a night porter and was an active member in the Penny Youth Theatre. His uncle owned the hotel and had warned him about not inviting his theatrical friends over to the hotel. In the middle of the night, after 4am, O'Connor decided to have a cup of tea with Mr Roach in his bedroom. He left the room for a short time before returning with a 15cm knife he had bought for £11.25. When O'Connor saw Mr. Roach in the bed in a state of undress, he stabbed him in the chest, telling him, quote, your gay days are over, end quote. Mr. Roach was later found tied to a chair. Following an anonymous call to the Garda station, O'Connor was arrested and questioned. He eventually admitted he, quote, had to kill him. He would have ruined my life. He wanted me to become gay. I said no way, and I killed him, end quote. O'Connor admitted to buying the knife with the intention of killing Mr. Roach if he tried to, quote-unquote, make him gay. At his trial, Michael O'Connor pleaded not guilty to murder. On the stand, O'Connor said, quote, He started to have a sex orgy with me. I felt sick in the stomach and dizzy in the head. I told him I was not coming back anymore and he told me to go fuck myself. I don't remember a thing after that. The next thing I remember, he was tied to a chair with a tie around his throat. End quote. O'Connor said that he got into bed with the deceased because he felt that if he gave him what he wanted, he'd be left alone. Despite an enormity of evidence of premeditation, O'Connor was found guilty of manslaughter. The judge commented during sentencing in the case that he believed Mr. Roach was a homosexual who had enticed O'Connor to take part in homosexual acts with him. According to the judge, O'Connor had consented because his personality had homosexual tendencies and he was ambivalent to homosexuals. The judge also said, quote, 
After engaging in these acts, you were likely to feel hostility and revulsion, and because of your low level of intelligence, you have less than normal self-control. End quote. The jury decided that the killing was a result of provocation, excusing the murder to some extent and placing blame back on the deceased, John Roach. O'Connor was sentenced to five years in prison. The night after John Roach was killed, 30-year-old Declan Flynn was murdered by a group of teenagers, which was covered in detail in episode 18. On September 9th, Declan Flynn was walking home through Fairview Park, following a night out at a local pub. One of the group of teenagers was sitting on a bench, waiting for a gay man to walk by, so he could try and entice him to sit with him. When Declan passed by the bench, four teenagers came out of their wooded hiding place and chased him, tripping him up before beating him with sticks. The group had been intent on quote-unquote bashing a queer. At the trial, two of the members of the group testified that they were quote, part of a team to get rid of queers from Fairview Park. A few of us had been queer bashing for about six weeks before and battered about 20 steamers. We used to grab them. If they hit back, we gave it to them, end quote. But Declan Flynn didn't hit back. He ran, terrified. He was not openly gay, and although he worked to set up resources for gay people in Temple Bar, he was afraid to be himself in case he was attacked. He was tripped up and beaten so severely that he asphyxiated on his own blood. The group of teens pleaded guilty to manslaughter. None of the killers were sent to prison, and all received suspended sentences ranging from one to five years, imposed by Justice Sean Gannon. Justice Gannon said at the sentencing, quote, One thing that has come to my mind is that there is no element of correction that is required. All of you come from good homes and experienced care and affection. Unfortunately, it has transpired from the evidence that this was not an isolated incident, but hopefully it will be the last. Everybody is entitled to have feelings and opinions, but it should never reach the stage of expressing violence to others. While I must demonstrate the abhorrence of the community by imposing sentences, I don't think it necessary to be served immediately by detention. End quote. Following this verdict and sentencing, David Norris said he feared that the lenient sentence could be interpreted as a license to kill. Declan Flynn had not been a prominent figure in Ireland's gay community before his death, but he inspired a movement that has brought more equality than he was ever afforded. On March 19, 1983, hundreds of men, women and children marched through the streets in Dublin in a protest against homophobic violence. This was Ireland's first gay pride march. The following month, David Norris's case to decriminalise homosexuality in Ireland was dismissed by the Supreme Court. The court found that the laws that made homosexual conduct a criminal offence were consistent with the Constitution and the Christian and democratic nature of the Irish state. The court said, 1. Homosexuality has always been condemned in Christian teaching as being morally wrong. It has equally been regarded by society for many centuries as an offence against nature and a very serious crime. 2. Exclusive homosexuality, whether the condition be congenital or acquired, can result in great distress and unhappiness for the individual and can lead to depression, despair and suicide. 3. The homosexually oriented can be importuned into a homosexual lifestyle which can become habitual. 
for male homosexual conduct has resulted in other countries in the spread of all forms of venereal disease, and this has now become a significant public health problem in England. 5. Homosexual conduct can be inimical to marriage and is per se harmful to it as an institution. End quote. Five years later, David Norris took his case to the European Court of Human Rights. The Irish state tried to say that Norris had no case, as he himself had never been convicted under the Offences Against the Person Act. But the European Court of Human Rights found that Norris, as a homosexual man, was a victim within the meaning of Article 25 of the Convention. Though Norris had never been convicted for homosexual activity, he could still be considered a victim, as it could potentially be enforced against him. The court also found that there was a breach of Article 8 of the Convention. This is the right a person has to respect for their private life. It was found that criminalising homosexuality breached Norris's right to respect for his private life as it prohibited sexual activity even between consenting adult men. Ireland was ordered to pay Norris's legal costs. Following a long-fought campaign for homosexual law reform, the Criminal Law Sexual Offences Act was passed on the 24th of June 1993, finally decriminalising homosexuality in Ireland. This paved the way for more reforms, including funding for health and social services for gay and lesbian people, domestic violence protections, and in 2010, the Civil Partnership Act passed, which gave gay couples more rights. But there was still a fight to come. In May 2015, Ireland voted in favour of same-sex marriage, the first country in the world to do so by popular vote. It was signed into law on October 29, 2015. Since then, there has been more progressive change for LGBTQ plus members of Irish society. However, despite positive changes in attitude and legislation in Ireland, there is still a lot of work to be done to ensure equal rights for all. For example, unlike most EU countries, Ireland currently has no effective hate crime legislation. There is the Prohibition of Incitement to Hatred Act 1989, which makes it illegal to create or distribute discriminatory materials, such as racist or homophobic literature. There is expected to be hate crime legislation enacted in 2022 with the implementation of the 2021 Hate Crime Bill. In addition to this, there have been criminal cases where a defence of provocation has been used in an attempt to excuse or partially justify a murder, just like in the case of John Roach in the 1980s. One such case, and one far more recent, is the murder of Gerard Hackett. This episode is sponsored in part by the wonderful folks over at BetterHelp. I'm a big believer in therapy for everyone, all the time. There's always something going on in my life that I need a neutral party to talk about. But honestly, if there's something in your life that you need to unload about or want to work through, or if there are some changes you might need to make, therapy isn't a luxury. It's a must. BetterHelp makes getting that support so incredibly easy. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can begin chatting in less than 48 hours. BetterHelp is real therapy done easily online. 
It's not a crisis line or self-help, but a way to access ongoing therapy and expertise that may not be locally available in many areas. It's even available worldwide. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, and in between those, send your shower thoughts to your therapist via their messaging option. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses to those mental health breakthroughs and not have to save them up for your scheduled sessions. BetterHelp is also more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Head on over to their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. I'm not the only one who loves this service. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash M-E-N-S. That's betterhelp.com forward slash men's. And join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. And right now, there's that special offer for Mens Rea listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash mens. This episode is also sponsored in part by Manscaped. Listen, there is no need to have your shower end up looking like the one in Psycho. And if you fellas continue to insist on taking what amounts to a straight razor to your ghoulish ghoulies, then it's no wonder your bathroom ends up looking like you're a Patrick Bateman wannabe. Let Manscaped get you prepared for whatever your trick-or-treating might lead you to this spooky season. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million folks worldwide. And right now you can help yourself to 20% off and free shipping with the code MENS at manscaped.com. It's time to end the days of shaving your nethers and ending up looking like a horror movie. The folks at Manscaped have the perfect package for your package to get this done. Inside the fourth generation performance package, you'll find the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, the Weed Whacker ear and nose hair trimmer, liquid formulations, and two free gifts. Their Lawnmower 4.0 is a premium upgrade from whatever hacksaw you've been using and features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. Also included is their Weed Whacker. This nose and ear hair trimmer is here to whack your weeds and any goblins that come your way. The lawnmower and weed whacker are waterproof, so whether you're in the comfort of your haunted home or in monster-infested waters, these tools are your best friends. They've got your back and definitely won't die first on you. And speaking of your best friends, don't forget to give your testy besties the love they desire with Manscaped's liquid formulations. First is the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, and we can't forget about their Crop Reviver Ball Toner to give the boys a boost. I hear perky balls are in for Halloween. Manscaped even throws in two free gifts with their performance package, the Manscaped Boxers and Shed Travel Bag. So get 20% off plus free shipping with the code M-E-N-S at manscaped.com. Spend spooky season using the best tools for the job at Manscaped. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code MENS. Slay your worst pubes with Manscaped. Middleton, an historically rich town in the east of County Cork in Ireland, is a scenic place not far from the busy city. Some people believe that it's the birthplace of Irish whiskey, and it's well known for the high-quality food and drink available in the area. A coastal town that boasts great fishing spots, beautiful rural roads, stunning architecture and artwork, 
it is still a favourite amongst tourists who visit the rebel county. Just after half past ten on the night of Sunday, the 20th of October 2002, Gardy received a 999 call from a man who claimed that there was a dead body in a place known as The Rock in Middleton County Cork. The caller identified himself as John Carroll and gave his address at 28 Father Murphy Place. Gardy were dispatched to The Rock, which was a vacant property on the outskirts of Middleton. In one of the outhouses at the dilapidated home, Garda Tom O'Halloran discovered the brutalised body of a man. The deceased was lying on his back with his feet towards the door. As the Garda got closer, he could see that the man had sustained a number of injuries to his head, face, hands and legs. The man's face was disfigured by the attack he had been subjected to, and a number of important pieces of physical evidence were found nearby. Above the man's head, there was a blood-stained concrete block. There was also a plank of wood, a metal pipe and an iron bar found by the man's body. The victim was naked from the waist down and some white underwear was found at his feet. He was wearing a maroon-coloured jacket, a grey jumper and a green t-shirt, which appeared to have been partially burned. When the Gardaí searched the rest of the property, they discovered a pair of trousers in the basement of the main house. The investigators immediately tried to locate the caller who had reported the body, especially as the caller had told the emergency dispatchers that the body was, quote-unquote, in a bad state. Police traced the call to a phone box on St. Mary's Road in Middleton. Just metres away, Garda Jerry Rowan noticed a man stumbling around. This fit with further information provided by the dispatcher from the emergency services, who had noticed that the caller seemed drunk on the phone. The drunk man near the payphone was identified as Mark Allingham. He was arrested at a quarter past eleven that night under Section 4 of the Public Order Act and he was brought to Middleton Garda Station. The following morning, after Mark Allingham had slept off the effects of alcohol in a holding cell at the Garda Station, Garda Rowan noticed what looked like bloodstains on the front of his T-shirt. He told his superior, Detective Sergeant Brian Golding, about this. And Gardy also discovered that the 23-year-old Allingham himself, in fact, lived on Father Murphy Place. There was no John Carroll at number 28 on the road, though, and Mark Allingham had been known to binge drink at the rock where the body had been found. On October 21st, at 7.53am, Allingham was released for the public order arrest and re-arrested just three minutes later in connection with the murder of the man that had been discovered the night before. The victim was identified as 49-year-old Jared Hackett, who lived in homeless accommodation at the Simon community and had done so for the previous five years. Jared had a drinking problem. He had previously lived in Reen Downey Place in Cork City, but due to his problems, he'd ended up in homeless services with the Cork-Simon community. On October 22nd, a special sitting was held at Middleton District Court. Mark Allingham was formally charged with murder and Superintendent Liam Hayes asked Judge Michael Patwell to deny bail and remand the accused into custody. Justice Patwell agreed and provided Allingham with free legal aid before sending him to Cork Prison until his next hearing, which was scheduled for a few days later in Formoy. 
Meanwhile, a post-mortem was carried out on Jared Hackett's remains by state pathologist Dr. Mary Cassidy. Dr. Cassidy found that the cause of death was head injuries as a result of a sustained and severe assault. Dr. Cassidy noted that Mr. Hackett had, quote, an extraordinarily large number of wounds, end quote, including two skull fractures at the top of his head, multiple fractures to his jaws, cheekbones and nose, brain bruising, and lacerations on his hands and legs. Based on the way the victim was dressed when he was found, and the fact that he had bruising on his penis, Dr. Cassidy said there may have been a sexual element to the assault. Around a year and a half later, on Monday, March 15, 2004, Allingham appeared at the Central Criminal Court and pleaded not guilty to the murder of Jared Hackett. After jury selection, three women and nine men were sworn in by Mr. Justice Paul Carney, and the trial began four days later, on March 19. Mr. Patrick McCarthy, acting for the prosecution, told the jury that Mr. Hackett was found with extensive injuries to his head, body, face and legs. He was found to have seven wounds on his head that looked to have been caused by a hatchet or an axe. He had facial injuries consistent with having a concrete block dropped from a height and numerous other injuries. Mr. McCarthy told the jury that Jared Hackett was last seen on Friday, October 18th, at the hostel he'd been staying in. It was alleged that Mark Allingham had come looking for him so that they could go drinking together, as they had done most days for the previous year. Garda Dennis Mulvihill had been the one to answer the 999 call made on October 20th. He testified that at 10.35pm, a call was put through from a male who told him that there was a body at the Rock, Towns Park, in Middleton. Garda Mulvihill said, quote, The caller gave his name as John Carroll of 28 Father Murphy Place. He stated that the body was in a bad state. The caller sounded dozy and intoxicated, end quote. Garda Tom O'Halloran, who had been the first Garda to respond to the 999 call about a body being in the rock, described for the court what had happened. Upon arriving at the derelict house, a premises which had been empty since the 1950s, the Garda checked the main house and found nothing. He then made his way to the buildings around it, and in the third outhouse he checked, he found Jared Hackett's body. Garda O'Halloran told the court, quote, There was a wooden door that was closed. I pushed it inwards and saw the body of a male lying on his back with his feet towards the door. His right knee was bent. He had numerous severe or serious injuries to his head and face. He also had a number of lacerations to his hands and legs. The lower half of his face was disfigured. Garda O'Halloran also gave evidence about the potential weapons that were found near the victim, saying, A large concrete block was above his head and there was a blood-like substance on it. On the left-hand side of his head, there was a timber plank going along the side of his body. There was a metal pipe leaning across his head and blood appeared to be on the pipe. There was another iron bar on the other side of the body, end quote. Members of the forensics team testified about evidence that was found when they surveyed the scene. A member of the mapping section of Angardashiakona Garda Brian Cleary explained the markings on a map of the property to the jury. The map showed the location where a pair of trousers were found, in the basement of the house. 
This was the area that the court would later hear Allingham said that the attack took place. Garda Rowan, who arrested Allingham on the night of October 20th, told the jury about various factors that made him suspect that Allingham had been involved in the murder. Allingham was found just yards from the phone box where the 999 call was made. He was highly intoxicated, as the caller had appeared to be, and he had what looked to be bloodstains on his shirt. Garda Rowan said, quote, Mark Allingham was found in the location of the phone box. He was drunk like the 999 caller, who was very drunk. The 999 caller gave his address at 28 Father Murphy Place. There was no John Carroll living at that address. Mr. Allingham was friendly with the Carroll family, and he was known to frequent the rock, end quote. Garda Rowan then outlined how Allingham had been rearrested the following morning in relation to the murder, discarding the lesser charges of public disorder once the defendant had sobered up and after initial Garda inquiries into Jared Hackett's death had clarified to investigators what was going on. The trial continued on Monday, March 22nd. That day, Mr. McCarthy, counsel appearing on behalf of the prosecution, read the interview notes taken by Detective Sergeant Brian Goulding on Sunday, October 21st, 2002, when he was speaking with Allingham. In the interview notes, Allingham said that he had met up with Jared Hackett on October 18th in Cork City, and they had got the bus to Middleton at 1.30pm. The defendant said that the two men had known each other for over a year, and they would drink together four or five days a week. On October 18th, they had gone to The Rock, an abandoned house just outside of town, where they continued to drink. It was in the basement of the house that Allingham claimed the attack had took place. He told Detective Sergeant Goulding that Jared Hackett had been sitting down and then began kissing him. Allingham said that when he realised that Mr Hackett wanted to have sex with him, he pulled out an axe and, quote, started belting him about the head, end quote. Allingham told Detective Sergeant Goulding that Mr. Hackett didn't get a chance to say anything as he was, quote-unquote, going down. During the interview, Allingham revealed to Gardy that he had been sexually abused in his youth and said that when Mr. Hackett tried to engage in sex with him, it all came back into his head. Allingham also admitted to calling 999 two days after Jared Hackett's death, pretending to be John Carroll, to inform the Gardy that there was a body at the rock. After this, the court heard a witness for the prosecution. Marge O'Driscoll told the court that she and her boyfriend had been approached by Allingham on October 16th outside a discount store on the main street of Middleton. During this interaction, Ms. O'Driscoll alleged that Allingham had pulled a red-tipped wooden hatchet from his trousers. On the third day of the trial, March 23rd, the jury were shown a video of the interview between Detective Sergeant Goulding and Mark Allingham on the morning of the 21st of October, 2002. In the recorded interview, Allingham said that he rang 999 and asked for Middleton Garda Station on the night of October 20th. When asked how he knew there was a dead body in the rock, Allingham had replied, quote, because I killed him, end quote. Allingham went on to say that he had killed Jared Hackett with the axe by hitting him in the head and legs, and he said he'd hit him well over ten times. In that interview, Allingham also revealed that he was bisexual and that he thought Mr. Hackett was homosexual. He told the detective that Mr. Hackett was trying to have sex with him and he had snapped. 
Detective Sergeant Goulding asked Allingham what he intended to do when he had pulled out the axe, and Allingham said that he wanted to, quote, give him a few slaps, end quote, referring to Jared Hackett. When Detective Sergeant Goulding asked if Allingham intended to kill Mr. Hackett, the defendant had responded by saying, quote, I suppose so, yeah, end quote. On the fourth day of evidence, Garda Brendan Coughlin, the exhibits officer on the case, presented a number of weapons to the jury. There was a six-foot metal guttering pipe, a four-foot metal pipe, a pointed metal bar, a blood-stained concrete block and an axe, apparently the same axe a witness had said was last seen in Allingham's hands on October 16, 2002. Then Dr. Mary Cassidy took to the stand, to detail the horrific nature of Mr. Hackett's injuries. The chief state pathologist said that the injuries sustained by Jared Hackett were consistent with repetitive blows from an axe. When she was presented with the red-bladed axe Allingham had been seen with, she agreed that it could have caused the injuries. When asked by the prosecution if the first blow had been an axe to the head, Dr. Cassidy replied that it was difficult to be precise when it came to the sequence of injuries Mr. Hackett had sustained. Dating injuries like lacerations can be done by observing the area for signs of hemorrhaging in the tissue. Most of the blood loss will come from the first brutal blow, leaving less blood in the body to be lost from other wounds. Injuries that are sustained after a victim's heart ceases to beat cause what is known as passive bleeding meaning the blood remained in the tissue. Dr. Cassidy was only able to say that the injuries in this case seemed to be inflicted one after another, with the majority being when the victim could no longer move. The exact date of Mr. Hackett's death was unknown, but had been narrowed down to between October 16th and October 21st, with the most likely time being on Friday, October 18th the evening that Allingham said he and his victim had gone to the rock. Determining an exact time of death is difficult because remains decompose at differing rates due to a number of factors like the external environment, temperature, and whether or not the body had been transported. When cross-examined by Mr. John O'Kelly for the defence, Dr. Cassidy was asked if the assault was consistent with a frenzied attack. She responded that it was a, quote, sustained attack and was an example of overkill, end quote. The court was also told that the blood that had been seen on Allingham's shirt on the night of his arrest was tested, and it had matched the blood found on Mr Hackett's body. So there was plenty of evidence that Allingham had killed the deceased, but the matter of his intent still remained. A witness for the defence, Dr. John Thompson, who was Allingham's GP, then testified that Allingham had had a childhood that was far from ideal. Dr. Thompson outlined that Allingham's mother had suffered from depression and when Allingham was just six years old, he was taken into care along with two of his brothers. Dr. Thompson testified that Allingham was a binge drinker who had attempted to take his own life before and had shown signs of emotional upset from a young age. This brought the evidence stage of the trial to a close. The following day, Thursday, March 25th, the prosecution and defence counsels gave their closing speeches to the jury. Mr. McCarthy, prosecuting, told the jury that there was no doubt that Allingham had killed Mr. Hackett and reiterated that it was the state's case that the defendant had done this with intent. 
Mr. McCarthy argued that self-defence did not arise in this case, and despite the defence's allegation of a sexual advance made by the victim, he underlined that there was no semen found on either of the men's clothes. Furthermore, Allingham had given different versions of what had happened. The defendant's case presented to the court was that Jared Hackett had pulled down his trousers to try and have sex with him, but in his statement to Gardee, Allingham had told them he had been the one to remove the victim's trousers and underpants. The prosecution said that Allingham did not want to get caught and had gone to great lengths to distance himself from the crime. The defendant had given a false name when calling 999 and he'd even tried to burn the victim's body, which had left burn marks on his t-shirt. John O'Kelly, appearing for the defence, told the jury that his client had not staged a defence like the prosecution had alleged. He said, rather, that the defendant was a down-and-out who had no education, no chances in life, and had been sexually abused before. Mr. O'Kelly said, quote, Sex is something that is very deep. We don't know what reaction we would have if we were provoked, especially if we had a load of drink inside us, end quote. The jury were then sent out for deliberations, which lasted four hours and 15 minutes, over the course of Thursday evening and then Friday morning. And so on Friday, March 26th, they returned with a majority verdict of guilty. While Jared Hackett's family were relieved, sitting at the back of the public gallery, Mark Allingham had no supporters in attendance, and he collapsed, crying heavily as the verdict was read. Mr Justice Dermot O'Donovan excused the jury from service for 15 years and commended them on their conduct over the previous five days of trial. Justice O'Donovan handed down the mandatory life sentence and Allingham was led from the courtroom. An inquest into Jared Hackett's death was held in September of 2006. There, Dr Mary Cassidy testified that Mr Hackett had sustained almost 30 lacerations and fractures to his head and it was her opinion that he'd likely fallen unconscious when he received the first blow. Mark Allingham files an appeal which was heard in 2008 by Mr Justices Nicholas Kearns, Declan Budd and Brian McMahon. Allingham maintained that he had snapped when Mr Hackett attempted to have sex with him. This is yet another example of a provocation defence, like so many we have seen before. If successful, this defence can reduce a murder conviction to the lesser charge of manslaughter. Legitimate defence applies when it's determined that an accused may be justified in their actions, but the level of force used must be taken into account. It's a type of self-defence claim and operates for non-lethal force as well as for taking someone's life. It relates to the accused's response to a threat and factors in whether the threat was imminent and warranted a response, and whether that response was proportionate to the level of harm threatened. Threats of rape and other sexual offences fall under this defence. In this case, there was no threat of rape, but the accused said that the victim's behaviour had provoked him by bringing up memories of past abuse, which had nothing to do with the victim. Self-generated necessity is when the defender is partly or wholly to blame for the original conflict. The main requirements for this are that the person who initiated the attack is precluded from raising the defence of legitimate defence unless the reaction from the victim was disproportionate. The onerous duty is also on the defender to retreat if they had initiated the attack. 
In this case, Allingham had been the one to initiate the attack. The onus on him was to retreat if he had felt threatened by Mr. Hackett or any impending sexual assault, although it was never proved that Mr. Hackett had even attempted to have sex with Allingham. Provocation requires the defence to prove that the offender suffered a complete and sudden loss of control, triggered by the actions or words of the deceased. In other jurisdictions, the jury are typically required to decide if a quote-unquote reasonable man would have lost control in the way that the accused did, and if the accused acted in response to a provocation by the deceased. This reasonable man test is common in various aspects of law in common law countries. But in Ireland, this is not the case. When it comes to provocation, the test is purely subjective. The jury do not have to believe that a reasonable person would have been provoked to murder by the actions of the deceased, only that the accused felt as though they were provoked. In 2009, this controversial defence method was retained in Ireland, despite the issues with it because the Law Reform Commission felt as though it would compromise the distinction between murder and manslaughter, and it could lead to reduced culpability being less recognised in murder cases. Although the defence does not succeed often during a murder trial, it is important to have it on appeal. Between 2003 and 2019, there were 13 murder conviction appeals which raised the issue of provocation. Seven of these 13 had their convictions quashed and were given a retrial. Five of those successful appellants were told that the Court of Appeal found that the judge who presided over their trial had addressed the jury incorrectly about provocation. This is despite the fact that the provocation defence dates back to the medieval period and the division of felonious homicide into murder and manslaughter. Murder had been thought the result of malice aforethought, a notion lacking in cases of provoked killings. The requirements set out at the time for a successful defence of provocation were either that the accused had been the victim of a grossly insulting assault that they had seen an Englishman unlawfully deprived of liberty, that they had seen a friend attacked, or they had caught someone in the act of adultery with their wife. It later came about that the accused should not be excused unless the provocation of the deceased was enough to deprive a reasonable man of self-control. Eventually, in Ireland, this became subjective, in that it was only the accused who had to have felt provoked in their circumstances to the extent that they were deprived of self-control. This partial defence is widely criticised, as it usually results in the accused being painted in the best light possible and the deceased being somewhat blamed for their own murder. It was, in some respects, designed solely to reduce the culpability of a male defendant, who had been provoked by an attack on their honour. For example, in some countries, including Ireland, a woman who has been the victim of domestic abuse for a prolonged period may kill her abuser while he sleeps, and even though there could be a justifiable reason as to why they felt they had to commit murder, her defence would not be allowed to claim that she was provoked. Furthermore, this defence can and is used often by heterosexual males to excuse killing gay male victims. Allingham claimed that he was provoked when Jared Hackett attempted to have sex with him, and although Allingham said himself that he was bisexual, This nearly directly mirrors the type of provocation defence that is often called gay panic.
This episode is also sponsored in part by our good friends, Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. Spooky season is officially upon us, and that's no different for my favourite puzzle game, Best Fiends. There's not many pumpkin patches in my neck of the woods, so at least I get to visit my little fiendy one and complete frightful missions with my cute little friends. In between work and carving up pumpkins and sprinkling pumpkin spice on everything, you will find me with a cuppa playing my favourite game, de-stressing and keeping my mind occupied. Honestly, I don't know what I'd do in the long pickup line on the school run without Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a five-star rated puzzle game packed with super fun brain challenges and never-ending entertainment. There's always new, cute characters to collect, new missions and tasks, or a new level to defeat. Best Fiends has over 5,000 levels to keep you challenged, so you can forget about running out of things to do. Make Best Fiends one of your cozy autumn activities. It's always fun, never frustrating, and keeps you coming back for more. Head on over to the Apple App Store or Google Play to download Best Fiends for free today. Remember, that's friends without the R. Best Fiends. The gay panic or homosexual advance defense is often combined with pleas of provocation or self-defense. It is a partial defense, absolving the defendant somewhat of the crime of murder and instead finding them culpable of manslaughter. It's thought of as a way to exploit the prejudices jurors may have against gay men and women. It asks the jury to find that a defendant's actions were provoked by the victim's sexual orientation or gender identity. It's supposed to excuse the defendant's loss of self-control and their violent reaction. This archaic defense implies that the lives of victims who are LGBTQ have less worth than others. It allows a defendant to argue that their victim's nonviolent sexual advance was sufficient provocation for them to kill. This stigmatizes any behavior that a defendant believes to be provocative, but only because the behavior is coming from someone who is LGBTQ+. One of the most notable cases where a gay panic defense was used is the murder of Matthew Shepard. Matthew Shepard was born in Casper, Wyoming on December 1st, 1976. He was the first-born child of Dennis and Judy Shepard, and he had a younger brother named Logan. Matthew went to school in Casper until he was 15 when his family moved to Saudi Arabia, where his father worked as an oil rig inspector. Matthew began attending an American boarding school in Switzerland. There, he made many friends and was even a peer counsellor. Matthew always had an interest in politics and wanted to work in human rights. He spoke three languages and he loved to travel. In 1995, Matthew went on a school trip to Morocco, where he was gang-raped and assaulted. This traumatic experience left him depressed and he struggled with drugs for a period, but by 1998 he was beginning to get his life back. He had enrolled in the University of Wyoming in Laramie and was majoring in political science. On Friday, the 6th of October, 1998, he went to the Fireside Bar in Laramie. It was karaoke night. There, he met two men his age, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson. Sometime after midnight, all three of them left the bar together and got into a pickup truck. Eighteen hours later, a cyclist spotted a crumpled figure tied to a fence in a field, east of Laramie. Initially, the passerby thought it was a scarecrow, but when he got closer, he saw that it was the bloodied and beaten body of a young man. First responders believed that the victim, who was barely clinging to life, 
was a teenager because Matthew Shepard was slim and short in stature. Matthew's parents received the news in Saudi Arabia and had to fly home to see their son in the intensive care unit in Fort Collins, Colorado, where he had been transferred. It took 25 hours for them to travel from Saudi Arabia to the hospital, and they'd had to wait 19 hours from the time of the phone call they'd received, telling them that Matthew had been found alone, tied to a fence close to death in a prairie. When his parents entered his hospital room, they couldn't tell that the person wrapped in bandages with tubes helping him to survive was their son. Matthew's mother, Judy, said she recognised him by the little bump on the top of his left ear and the clear blue colour of one of his partially opened eyes. The beating that Matthew had suffered was so severe that Matthew was brain dead. He died on October 12th, 1998. Matthew's memorial service was held on October 16th. It was picketed by the Westboro Baptist Church, a group notorious for their hatred of members of the LGBTQ community. A few days earlier, the police had located the suspects, who were found to have had items belonging to Matthew in their possession, and a blood-stained gun. Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson had driven Matthew to an isolated area and beat him mercilessly with the butt of a magnum pistol. They then left him tied to the fence, in the cold, to die. McKinney and Henderson were addicts. McKinney told the police that Shepard had offered him meth in exchange for sex, but later said that he'd killed Matthew after Matthew put his hand on his leg. When the trial of the two men began, the Westboro Baptist Church tried to picket again, but they were blocked out by dozens of people wearing makeshift costumes with large white wings that shielded anyone from reading the hate written on their signs. Russell Henderson pleaded guilty to kidnap and murder in April of 1999. Testifying at his plea hearing, he said that he had met McKinney through work and they had become friends. Henderson was living with his girlfriend, Chastity Paisley, at the time of Matthew's murder and on October 6th, he went to the fireside bar with Aaron McKinney. McKinney said he wanted to rob Matthew Shepard and instructed Henderson to drive out past the Walmart so he could do this. Then McKinney demanded Matthew's wallet and began hitting him with the butt of the gun. Henderson drove to the spot McKinney directed him to and got some rope from the pickup truck. McKinney told Henderson to tie Matthew's hands up, which he did. Then he tied his hands around a pole. When Henderson told McKinney that he thought Matthew had had enough, McKinney hit him in the face with the gun. Henderson had to receive nine stitches the next day. Henderson got back into the truck, followed soon after by McKinney, who had taken Matthew's shoes and his wallet which contained $20. McKinney and Henderson's girlfriends helped them dispose of their bloodstained clothing and were also subsequently charged in relation to their role in the crime. Matthew Shepard's father delivered an impact statement that ends with, quote, When we eat dinner, there is a place set for Matt, and we know it will not ever be filled again with his laughter, his bad puns and his stories. Remember this for the rest of your life, end quote. In the statement, Mr. Shepard spoke of how caring his son was, saying he made May baskets each year for a woman who had no children. He rang his friends in the middle of the night when they were struggling. He made friends with anyone and everyone. Mr. Shepard asked, who would do those things now? 
Aaron McKinney tried to claim gay panic at his trial, arguing that the victim's sexual orientation was to blame for the defendant's violence. This defense is still legal in most states in the U.S. It's a defense that, when accepted, implies that the victim is to blame and that their life was worth less than others because of their sexuality. In this case, the defense was quickly dismissed by the judge. Dennis Shepard told McKinney in court, quote, I would like nothing better than to see you die, Mr. McKinney. However, this is the time to begin the healing process, to show mercy to someone who refused to show any mercy. End quote. Instead of risking the death penalty at the sentencing phase of the trial, McKinney, who was found guilty of kidnapping, aggravated robbery, and second-degree murder, chose to accept the sentence of life without parole, with no possibility of appealing. The crime was not prosecuted as a hate crime because it was not possible to do so in Wyoming at the time. Some tried to claim that the murder was drug-related, but in 2018, the pathologist who performed Matthew Shepard's autopsy said she believed it was a hate crime due to the finger-shaped bruising that she'd found on Matthew's groin and the fact that he had no hard drugs in his system. Matthew's final resting place is at the Washington National Cathedral, an honour bestowed to inspirational figures like Helen Keller. His ashes were interred there in October of 2018, 20 years after his murder. Matthew's parents founded the Matthew Shepard Foundation following their son's murder in the hopes of encouraging acceptance and embracing diversity to honour their son. The foundation helped push through legislation for hate crimes, the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act 2009. They also provide hate crime training to law enforcement and prosecutors. Matthew Shepard's life and legacy has inspired movies, plays, books and movements. His story has changed the perception of hate crimes worldwide and awakened a greater drive for equality for all. Though this kind of provocation defense is still legally admissible in many states in the US, it has been banned in 16 states, and legislation against this defense has been introduced in a further 10 states, though it has yet to pass. Although attitudes to homosexuality have changed since then, the law, in some places, has not. The main ground of Mark Allingham's appeal in his case related to the manner in which the trial judge addressed the jury before their deliberations in relation to the burden and standard of proof pertaining to the question of provocation. The appeal court found that Justice O'Donovan had explained in the clearest possible terms that the defendant had enjoyed a presumption of innocence and that the burden of proof was on the prosecution. It was the obligation of the prosecution to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt and Mr. Allingham did not have to prove anything about any aspect of his case, including his alleged provocation. The trial judge had said this two separate times in his summary, saying that Allingham did not have to prove anything himself and the jury were to have regard to the fact that unsworn statements, those not made at trial, did not have the same evidential value as sworn statements, those made under oath. Judge O'Donovan then went on to refer to the contents in Allingham's statements to the police during his initial interviews, where he said that he was provoked when Mr. Hackish made a direct sexual advance. The trial judge had gone on to say, quote, now, there are points that appear to me from the evidence to support the suggestion that Mr. Allingham was provoked. There may be other matters you might think support that proposition. Then you turn to the other side of the coin, and there is other evidence you have to consider in the context of the claim that Mr. Allingham was provoked. End quote. 
Allingham's appeal was denied in May of 2008, with Justice Nicholas Kearns presiding, saying that Mr Justice Dermot O'Donovan, the trial judge in the case, had made no errors in his summary to the jury or his explanation of the defence of provocation. Allingham's counsel tried to refer the appeal to the Supreme Court in July of 2008 under Section 29 of the Courts of Justice Act, which states that an appeal can go to the Supreme Court if there is found to be a point of law of exceptional public importance and that it was in the public interest to take it to the Supreme Court. But again, this was denied. Jared Hackett had been living in homeless accommodation for five years before his death and he struggled with alcoholism. Addiction is the leading cause of homelessness in Ireland. The majority of those who are able to access addiction support while homeless feel that the aftercare is severely lacking and having to return to hostels where there is a lot of drug and alcohol abuse leads to relapses. Another issue Jared faced is that there are not enough services for homeless members of the LGBTQ plus community and of course there were even less in 2002. Many LGBTQ homeless individuals have experienced bullying, threats and even violence due to their sexuality and 88% of those surveyed by the Inner City Helping Homeless and Babs Empowerment Project had been the victim of some form of crime. 84% of those who attended homeless services said that they were afraid to complain in case they lose their bed. In 2017, Mark Allingham was one of 15 men serving a life sentence in Cork Prison which in Ireland is typically just 12 years, with parole hearings beginning after the killer has served just seven years of their sentence. A piece of legislation that would increase the minimum term served before convicted killers can apply for parole to 12 years was first proposed to the government in 2016. It was enacted in July of 2019 and would mean that the parole board would become an independent body outside of the government, becoming more transparent and accessible to victims. The new parole board would be made up of people who were appointed by the Minister for Justice, who would have an understanding of the prison system, the law, and the impact on victims. The Parole Act 2019 was implemented in the summer of 2021, bringing the minimum sentence for murder from just seven years to 12 years. This is, of course, a small consolation for those impacted by homicide. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It is hugely important to be able to keep Mensrea going, and along with the warm fuzzies of helping out, you get those ad-free and bonus episodes, as well as nifty merch. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash Pod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, Best Fiends, Better Help, and Manscaped. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so go check them out in the show notes. Our theme music is Quinsong, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.
Garda, Garda Dennis Mulvihill. 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 Something is creeping in. Don't follow it. Down. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I've been dating for the last six months is a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series... And that's when murder, mm. all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris, and this is my story, Conning the Con. <laughs> 